I, I had a cold open topic. Go on. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? No. Do you? <laughs> I wrote, mine, definitely high resolution. HD yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> That's funny. <Yeah. laughs> Sorry. That was just, it was a cool joke I've been working on. I thought I'd, I'd workshop it. Yeah, I like it. that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Rule Britannia over here is Daniel. God bless America. It's Abby. So this is our first episode of season four, and we have some slight updates about how this show is going to run. So what we are planning on doing is instead of doing our normal like 10 or 12 episode seasons, we're going to do one long season from February to December, and we're going to guarantee you at least one episode per month. Preferably, we are going to do one every two weeks like we have been doing this whole time, but you know, life and work get in the way, so we might take the odd episode off. Just bear with us, but you're looking at, yeah one longer season, more episodes. So, Daniel, would you like to do some letters? Because we have got a ton in our inbox. We're, we're going to try to get through some of the backlog. Yes. If you've written in, we will get to yours eventually. Just bear with us as we work through. This is one that is, is like, pressing, I think, because it's relevant to the previous episode, Line the Witch in the Wardrobe. It's from someone called Caroline. She wrote, Hey, guys, loving your work. Thank you. Just listen to Line the Witch in the Wardrobe. You asked why a pelican was part of Aslan's crack band of animal troops. Yeah, why is there a pelican in this well, army? What's a pelican going to do? Well, Christian symbol in it, she says. And then HTTPS... Oh, Daniel! Oh, right, well, she sent a link about how the pelican is a Christian symbol. Okay, so the pelican was believed to pierce its own breast with its beak and feed its young of its blood, and it therefore became a symbol of Christ sacrificing himself for man. So the pelican was very frequently represented in Christian art. This sounds like some Anglican bullshit. I've never seen this no, in Catholicism. No, it's older than that. It's, pre, it's pre-Christian. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Caroline, because that actually does answer my question about what that was doing there. That, that makes a lot of sense now. We got another one from Morgan. Dear SMFMS, I've fallen in love with literature again. Despite A-level English lit feeling like IBS gone wrong for two years. <laughs> I don't know what that means. IBS gone wrong. <laughs> What's IBS gone right? <laughs> I'm currently at uni and I'm trying to switch to dual honours, German and English. Yeah, I did dual honours too, so, you know, let that be a lesson. What were you, French and English? French and English. Although you two do concentrate on English, there's a fin de siècle German play I'd like to recommend. Frühling's Erwachen. Oh, friend, I have seen that. Spring Awakening. Which became a gaudy and god-awful Broadway show in the year of our Lord 2006. So, I have seen both the play version, which was done at a very amateur level and was incredibly painful to watch. I, I, that's no reflection necessarily on the play, but the, the production I saw was bad. And I saw the, that original Broadway run with Leah Michelle and Jonathan Groff. I saw his bare butt. Wow. That I give an A+. Plus. <laughs> um, well, I don't think Morgan likes it either. Brief summary. Kids are pubescent. Parents want to suppress this. Many die. It would be a joy to hear you tear Vedakin's work, <laughs> Vedakin's work, from a limb from a limb. I didn't mean to say Vedakin's work. Vedakin's work. 
Yeah, I mean, so I'm I'm actually really familiar with these texts. That is something we could potentially add to our long list because I hadn't even thought about looking at the play version of that. Okay, another one. Emily wrote in. She said, Hi both! I love the show. You both make me laugh out loud every episode. I get a lot of weird looks on the subway. <laughs> That's our goal. Yeah. It's an American, probably. That's interesting. Or maybe the, the sandwich chain, do you think? Yeah, she's sitting at... <laughs> on, top of, on top of one of those sandwich shops. Um, y'all should... Oh, that's the other American thing. So it's the Mississippi subway. Y'all should totally do Dubliners. Or Moby Dick. I love everything you pick. So, Aww. Yeah. I love Dubliners and Moby Dick, too. Yeah, we talked about Moby Dick in a previous episode, and I think we actually love that book a little too much to do it. I think I'd have a hard time with it. It's just, it's too precious. It is so queer. It is such a gay novel that it's looped back around to being straight. How does that work? It's called the Kinsey Scale. It's called the Kinsey Mobius Scale. <laughs> Kinsey Mobius Strip. Yeah. <laughs> so here at Aston University, we have just started up an MA in English, and if you would like to be taught by Daniel and I, potentially on this course, uh, then please do sign up to our MA English at Aston. So Daniel, what is our text today? Well, as we all know, this podcast is based in Birmingham, in the West Midlands region. Mm -hmm. And we all know this area, don't we? It's prosperous, welcoming, <laughs> uh, and it has its own kind of modest culture, doesn't it? And we know that because we've covered some of its literary output on the show. George Eliot, William Shakespeare, arguably the Gawain poet, came from the West Midlands. Some people even claim that Beowulf was written in the West Mercian dialect. But there's another Midlands. It's a strange place with weird customs, exotic sounding place names, Derby, Leicester, Nottingham, etc. It's the mysterious East Midlands. Its people are of two kinds, de-sexed, inscrutable and cunning, or, you know, overcome by lascivious sexual appetites, wallowing in carnal excess toiling in unnatural mines and mills, or, alternatively, roving the woodlands, communing with Mother Earth, practicing barbarous customs. <laughs> we're doing Lady Chatterley's Lover, 1928. So, yeah, we're, we're giving you a Valentine's Day episode with something... Oh, yeah, I forgot that was the theme. Yeah. <laughs> sexy, question mark? You yeah. know, and, and it's our first episode of season four, so it's our amuse-bouche of the season, if you will. Well, I assure you, fine folks, that my bouche was not amused in the slightest by this book. So it goes without saying, we're about to spoil this book for you. As a bit of a content thing, this is definitely a not safe for work episode. There's a lot of sex in here, a lot of very weird sex, um, a lot of four-letter words, which is what this book is kind of famous for. There's a bit of homophobia, some anti-Semitism, some anti-Black racism. There's severe injury and paralysis stuff, there's infertility stuff, a lot of class issues, so, you know, that's that's what we're going to be talking about today. If that's not for you, turn this off. Yep. Turn it off. <laughs> so, would you like to do some background, please? Yes. D.H. David Herbert. I didn't even know that. That's what it stands for. Lawrence. Was an English author. He wrote novels, short stories, poetry, travel writing. He was born in Nottinghamshire in 1885. He was from a kind of working class background. His dad was a miner. His mum had been a teacher but was also a factory worker um, but he did well at school in this in the first decade of the 20th century and moved to London restarted training as a teacher doing a bit of writing on the side but he soon caught the attention of the modernist novelist who eagle-eared listeners may have heard of before Ford Maddox Ford so after that after being kind of 
discovered. Know, discovered, yeah, Lawrence became a kind of full-time writer and bohemian type. Flash forward, 1912. Lawrence was on holiday in Germany where he met his future wife, Frieda. She was a German aristocrat. And, you know, I wonder if this sort of class-crossing romance has parallels to the plot of Lady Chatterley, although you have a, a kind of another, another parallel We'll to, get to there. Yeah. We'll get there. Germany and Britain didn't really get on at the time, did they? So, what? Yeah, I know. So wherever they were, Lawrence and Frieda were constantly being accused of spying for the other side. So the famous one was in 1917 when they were in Zener in Cornwall trying to set up an artist colony and they were kind of accused of signalling to German submarines. And so after that, they just kind of left England forever and um, just travelled around the world, you know, living in New Mexico and Sri Lanka. And I think they ultimately were in Tuscany where Lawrence wrote Lady Charlie's Lover. I think this kind of tension between sort of dreary working-class life and then kind of the bohemian life is reflected in Lawrence's style, isn't it? Because he's very excessively purple a lot of the time. Yeah, do you want to define what purple prose is for those who don't know? Yeah, kind of an overly poetical passage that maybe... I mean, it used to be a compliment, didn't it, in ancient Greece, but I think now it's almost a kind of criticism. Yeah, it's it's somebody who's, like, really working overtime to paint a scene and to, you know, it's just, you're just, like, a bit... Whenever you kind of go, okay, you can calm calm down a bit. But then he also has loads of, like, East Midlands dialects as well, so there's a kind of... Now, you are a son of the West Midlands, correct? Well, I was born in Leicester. (gasps) So are you going to be able to do the East Midlands dialect for us? I'll give it a go. The big thing about Lady Chatterley is that alongside a lot of Lawrence's other works, it was subject to accusations of obscenity and was censored. There's loads of sex and stuff, as we've already heard in the content warning. Yeah, so when this was first published, Lawrence actually published it kind of privately. Yeah. So it was only in the 60s when Penguin wanted to release... 1960 itself. Yeah, Penguin wanted to release a full version that hadn't been sort of like censored. I mean, I think Lady Chatterley would kind of be forgotten today if it weren't for yeah. this 1960 court case, right? The, yeah, the court case was big, wasn't it? Because I think cause Penguin won and it... I think it's sometimes held as like the kind of beginning of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. The, I'll, I'll read the Philip Larkin poem. Sexual intercourse began in 1963 between the end of the Chatterley Ban and the Beatles' first LP. That's that kind of historical... At the time, they had that sense of... Yeah, it was, it was this big um, question about if Lady Chatterley was considered pornography or not. Mm. And that was really funny because Lawrence actually hated pornography. He was very weird about sex. He viewed sex as uh, ideally a communion of the souls. It only really counted if you and your partner had a simultaneous orgasm. He was <laughs> obsessed with the idea, as we're going to see in this book but he thought of it as this very pure and holy thing and had a lot of very serious ideas about what sex should be and he just thought pornography degraded it yeah no wonder you didn't get on in england because we love all (laughs) our kind of bawdy seaside smart uh can i just read the thing that the prosecution said the famous prosecution line Mm -hmm. ask yourselves the question is it a book that you would have lying around in your own house is it a book that you would even wish your wife or your servants to read so i think people need to have a good long think about that do you listen would you have your wife or servants read this yeah so that was asked at the court case yeah. and everyone started laughing yeah. when the that lawyer was, said that, that killed the case that killed the case because clearly the prosecution was so out of touch yeah. with what was happening in the 60s yeah and i do want to say i get a lot of my information from this from kate lister's podcast betwixt the sheets because she did a really good episode on lady chatterley's lover so all of my background on lawrence is pretty much from that excellent so to turn this off and Listen to that, really. It's Valentine's Day. Are you ready for a good, sexy, jolly time? Hell yeah. Are you ready for your jingles jangled? (laughs) Yeah, I I am. Uh, Let's see if I get that. (laughs) (laughs) Um. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Right.
That was natural. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it begins, ours is essentially a tragic age, so we refuse to take it tragically. The cataclysm has happened, we're among the ruins. We start to build up new little habitats to have new little hopes. So, cheerful stuff then. Indeed. Enter Constance Chatterley. No innuendo intended there. Yeah, I mean, Constance, do you think that's going to be an issue? Oh yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking more like enter, but it was a bit of <laughs> Oh, I didn't even get that. See, my mind is pure yeah. and good. <laughs> Sorry. I am I am cut from the cloth of God, Daniel. Okay. And so she's a posho, but she's also a kind of ruddy-looking country girl. She and her sister Hilda were fairly well-educated by her bohemian parents, and so she's kind of very comfortable among artists and intellectuals and politicians. Connie and Hilda, they travel around Europe in their youth, and they especially like to go to Germany, where that's they, they sort of discover sex. The home of sex. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so Connie's not that fussed by sex. What she really gets off on is sort of talking to men deeply. So again, here is Lawrence's really weird, like, sexual worship, where, you know, it's it's all about having this sublime connection. Yeah, it's you not... can't You can't just do it like animals. So, in 1917, young Connie marries the young and handsome Sir Clifford Chatterley while he's on leave from the Great War. It's important to note that Sir Clifford was a virgin when they married, and she's not, and he's not really into that into sex anyway. So they do it like a couple of times, yeah, maybe. Yeah, get him out of the way. He gets seriously injured in the war and returns paralysed from the waist down. Oh, no. Permanently crippled, quote-unquote, Chatterley decides to decamp to the family estate of Ragby. Mm, the glamorous Midlands yeah. where anything can happen. Indeed. They have an Ollie that stays open till eight, you know. So now we get a bit on Clifford. He's a full-bred Aristo. Uh, quote, Connie was the well-to-do intelligentsia, but he was aristocracy. So he's fine in his own world, but he's kind of a bit spooked by everything else. If truth must be told, he was a little bit, just a bit frightened of the vast hordes of middle and lower class humanity. His paralysis therefore means the apparent end of the Chatterley dynasty. Yeah, yeah he's, he's so delicate, I could just punch straight through him, this, you know, rice paper motherfucker. Now, it's important to note here, he's kind of a stand-in for D.H. Lawrence, Mm. A little bit. He's a stand-in for the author because D.H. Lawrence, when he was writing this book, he was only two years from death himself. He was incredibly frail. He had TB and he was impotent. Mm. And when he had this big, buxom, sexual wife who he could not satisfy. So to some extent, yeah, D.H. Lawrence and, but, but, and Sir Clifford are aligned, which is funny because Clifford is not portrayed very sympathetically. No, that's interesting as well because also like his wife was, when he met her, she was a married aristocrat. Yeah. So... He's kind of, he's playing all the roles, it seems. Always. Yes. So, Connie and Clifford, they live in his shitty Midlands mansion, Ragby, and Connie hates it. She, quote, took in the utter soulless ugliness of the coal and iron Midlands at a glance and left it at what it was, unbelievable and not to be thought about. So it's this big drafty house. You know, the prefab I have here is a bigger draft than Vietnam. And it, yeah. it doesn't help that there's a mine. World War One probably had a bigger draft, didn't it? <sighs> you have any other notes for me? No, carry on. Okay. And it doesn't help that there is a mine, like, literally next door, which is noisy and covers everything in soot. Quote, the air always smelled of something under earth, sulfur, coal, iron, or acid. And even on the Christmas roses, the smut settled persistently, incredible, like black manna from skies of doom. 
purple prose, yeah. man. It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. I like that bit. Yeah, that's a good bit. Black mana from skies of doom. Okay, yeah. chill the fuck kind out. A heavy metal group, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Even a heavy metal group would be like, mm, too much. Ooh, Rain yeah. it in. So, all right. Here's where things start to get a little spicy. A little taster. Great. <laughs> so one day, Connie's dad comes to visit, and he looks at Connie, and he doesn't really like how she looks. He says he hopes that she's doing all right, and that she's not still some sort of half virgin. He's <laughs> like, you're getting thinner. You're clearly not getting railed enough. You need to take a lover. And it's just a very weird dynamic she has with her dad, and mm. we need some sort of awkward sex klaxon yes. in this. Yeah. But, I mean, it's more than just her dad, though, because the whole book spends a lot of time being like, oh, Connie, my sweet, plump, frisky little woodland creature, my little jugs bunny, what happened to you? <laughs> so, Lawrence is constantly going on about Clifford's physical helplessness and his emotional fragility and immaturity. So, Connie she figures there's a sort of helper and emotional crutch with little time for herself. She kind of becomes a servant. She has to take care of him like bodily. And the, yeah. the implication is, you know, she does all those really intimate things that he would normally do for himself. So it's like, it lessens the romance. Yeah, brushing his knees. Um, <laughs> um, dusting his... Uh, knees. Coccyx. <laughs> well, it's going to need some dusting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, his coccyx and his coccyx. Um <laughs> Clifford doesn't have much agency in some respects, but he kind of circumvents this when he becomes a writer. This means that intellectuals visit Ragby from time to time. One of them is the Irish playwright, Michaelis, who's a sort of like neither nor figure, isn't he? He hobnobs with the English elite, but he's reviled for his Dublin street rat origins. He's, quote, an ownerless dog whom everybody begrudges his golden collar. Connie's attracted to him, though. Yeah, they exoticize the hell out of his sexy, weird Irish face. Yeah, Connie thinks that Michaelis was a heroic rat, and Clifford was very much of the poodle showing off. That is a terrible Yelp review. <laughs> so, after talking alone together about their loneliness, Connie and Michaelis have sex. Michaelis is, quote, a curious and very gentle lover. Very, is that curious, like... What's that, then? Poke, poke? Yeah, or like, hmm, curious. Most curious. What is he doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, very gentle with the woman, trembling uncontrollably. <laughs> oh, I'm just so grateful to you, Miss Lady Chatterley. <laughs> Awkward, Awkward sex, sex there, please. Accent, yeah, yeah well, why is he... I don't get that. Th why he trembles all over? He's like he's like Jack in Titanic, where you're like, what did she do to him? <laughs> so we need to talk about their sex life, because yes. again, this whole book is D.H. Lawrence's big treatise on sex his big dissertation on what sex even is connie really likes michaelis but she's unable to sort of finish right um he's all talk no potato like basically what happens is they have sex he finishes and then he has to stay sort of erect while she like <laughs> yeah. you know diddles her doodle yeah. you know and whatever and does it in her own time and it's really unclear if he's just finishing too quickly or if connie sort of likes it that he finishes first and then she like is this some sort of weird sex mind game she's yeah. playing with him um, I, I i don't know but yeah again lawrence is super into the idea that the only real sex is sort of simultaneous orgasm sex so um, they're, they're clearly not that well aligned is no, what he's telling yeah. us <laughs> yeah. but like, she gets there eventually it's fine um it's fine yeah well maybe he just wants an early night i don't know <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> so Clifford has other intellectual buddies over and they have these incredibly tedious highfalutin mm. debates about sex and love and marriage and Lawrence just really goes to town preaching you know his his philosophical thesis on boinking yeah so Connie finds them intolerable one day Connie and Clifford, they go through a walk in the woods with Clifford in his mobility chair. It's a sort of little motorized chair that he has, which I thought was really fun. I didn't realize that they had sort of motorized wheelchairs back in the 20s. (laughs) (laughs) And they stumble across, quote, a clearing where there was nothing but a ravel of dead bracken, a thin and spindly sapling leaning here and there, bugs on stumps showing their tops and their grasping roots lifeless. Okay, Lawrence, I'm picking up what you're putting down. So, like, in short, Clifford's father had cut down all of these trees for the war effort, and Clifford's like, oh, I have to replant them. So, like, find the phallus much, or mm. rather the lack thereof, yeah. like, oh, all the, the mighty oaks are shorn down to their <laughs> nubbins, you yeah. know, and especially because this is right next to the, the nearby mine, her mm. the vaginal space that's unruly. Oh, yeah, that too, yeah. And, and it, it produces things, but maybe not on his terms, and, th- you know. Yeah. Hence why he wants to take it over. Oh, I never even thought that. Yeah. Okay. So Clifford, on this walk, he gets really emotional about not being able to have a son. I mean, he never says a word about a daughter, but that's fine. And he tells Connie that he actually wouldn't mind if she had a son by another man, as long as he could bring it up as his own. He trusts that she would pick the right sort of dude, too. Quote, you just wouldn't let the wrong sort of fellow touch you. (laughs) And I'm like, sir, you need to make that sound a lot less sexy, or that's exactly what she's going to do. After that, I'm like, I want the wrong sort of fellow to touch me. (laughs) So his philosophical friends have clearly gotten to him, and they've convinced him that sex doesn't really matter. It's just this weird animal urge. An occasional spasm. My question is, why has every bit of joy been scooped out of this book with a melon baller? I like a honeydew. Anyway. I honey don't. <laughs> Very good. Terrible. Well, Terrible. It was quick. Sorry, there's, oh, I think, a writer's strike on. <laughs> okay. uh, so they're having this unsexy conversation. Who should turn up? But the new gamekeeper, Oliver Mellazor. Mellazballer. He was a man in dark green velveteens. And gaiters. Oh, the old style. You're My favourite kind of gaiters. You're so excited for fall fashion. <laughs> yeah, I am, yeah. With a red face and a red moustache. How can you tell if you've got a red face? <laughs> it's camouflaged, isn't it? And distant eyes. Very sexy. Can we talk about how he is written almost identically to Peter Quint from Turn of the Screw? Oh, yeah. Evil ginger Arist no Aristo's servant with with a sort of like weird sexual deviancy. Yeah. But he but uh, Oliver Mellers is like Peter Quint for people who are lactose intolerant. <laughs> he's low fat Peter Quint. So he's gluten free Peter Quint. So here's your IQ test. Yeah. Heathcliff is to <laughs> what's his name? Mr. Rochester. Well, Heathcliff is to Rochester. Peter Quint is to. Oliver Mellors. Okay, well, people doing the SATs, when, yeah. you, when you get that on there, you can... Yeah, that, that, well, you'll know. Yeah. We, we uh, take checks in thanks. <laughs> so, Mellors joins him for the rest of the walk to help Clifford with his wheelchair. So he's literally revving someone's engine, you know, and Connie's there looking at this big burly guy, you know, sort of cranking the engine, and she's like, who's this big tall glass of bang? Wow, my life really sucks. He's not burly, though, as we'll discuss later on. Well, I mean, he's... He's, he's got that lean Jesus hanging off the cross muscle. 
You know, he's, yeah. he's got a little... He's got, El Greco. He's, he's got a six-pack under there. Yeah, maybe. Later, Connie inquires about him. Oh, yeah, who's, who's that Mellors guy, by the way? Yeah, uh, apropos of nothing, honey. Yeah. Uh... Mellors is a local lad from Tevishal, the local town. He's the son of a miner. He's a former soldier. He has an estranged wife. Coincidentally, perhaps, Connie finds herself increasingly estranged from Clifford. I do like that every rich woman in literature is like, I have to go watch the burly groundskeeper plant a ficus just so I can feel something. <laughs> so, later, Michaelis comes... The Irish lover, if you remember, the yeah, trembly, yeah. weird Irish lover. He comes back to rugby. He proposes that Connie divorce Clifford and marry him, which she seriously considers. But then there's more stuff about his weird skittishness as bed, and there's this further issue about the timing of orgasms or crises as they tend to be called and Michaelis has a go at Connie for not getting it over with quicker which sort of puts her off him. He's like, oh, but Jesus, why, why, why are you taking so long and me, turn, <laughs> turning me into your personal toy? <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, it's the fact that he's mad at her for taking a long time and also the fact that he f***s like a weird shivery chihuahua. <laughs> That's the thing that would turn yeah, me off. Having his heart attacks all the way through. Yeah. <laughs> I like that yeah, they call it a crisis. Like, you almost expect, you know, somebody to do a big benefit concert after every time. <laughs> well, maybe after this one, I don't know. <laughs> so that's kind of the end of Michaelis. Like, Connie and him, they, they kind of just part ways mm. and are done with each other. One day, Connie is out walking in the woods, and she hears a gunshot followed by someone yelling at a child. And it turns out it's Mellers and a sobbing little girl to whom Mellers says... Ah, shut it up, the false little bitch. Turns out the little girl is Mellers' daughter. Hey. So his, you know, his wife had run away with another man sometime previously. And the daughter's name is also Connie, which I thought was just a weird detail. Yeah, an odd move. Um, and Mellers has shot a cat in front of the daughter because the cat was, quote, a poacher. Must be she's getting into the pheasants or something. Yeah. So Lady Chatterley, she's like, Jesus Christ, dude, calm down. And she tries to be nice to young Connie and sort of, you know, but... <laughs> there's there's sort of a real fucking curveball here because quote Connie disliked her the spoiled false little female yeah. and she says also this little girl's kind of boring and can we just go stick it with you know her grandmother which is what they do so I guess Connie and Mellers can bond over being horrible to children together and this is foreplay <laughs> yeah she starts to get to know Mellers a little bit better and it's important to note that he has this weird habit of flitting from a sort of heavy Derbyshire accent that's sometimes very hard to read to much more like standard King's English and they the, the people point it out in the book all the time mm. that he's constantly going between these two. One day Sir Clifford wants to send a message down to his gameskeeper but it's too rainy for his chair to make the journey and his typical message boy has come down with the flu so this is this is a classic romance novel device mm. it really does feel to me though that somebody ran a harlequin romance novel through an evil ai and this is what came <laughs> yeah. out and especially because it's like unintelligible <laughs> and connie agrees to go so she knocks on his door but he doesn't answer so she goes around the side of his house where of course he's having an outdoor bath sexy sponge bathing Quote, the man was washing himself, utterly unaware. He was naked to the hips, his velveteen breeches slipped down over his slender loins, and his white slim back was curved over a big bowl of soapy water, in which he ducked his head, shaking his head with a queer, quick little motion, lifting his slender white arms and pressing the soapy water from his ears, quick, 
subtle as a weasel playing in the water. So I am, um, I do kind of appreciate the odd bit of female gaze there. That's that's quite mm. rare. Usually it's a man looking at a woman doing something like this. Emphasis on odd though. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. But also this is the second appearance on the show of somebody being sexy and being compared to a weasel. If you yeah. remember from the Canterbury Tales. I thought this series was going to be all pelicans. I thought we got rid of beavers and it was going to be all pelicans. But I think it might be the year of the weasel. So anyway, so to reuse a joke from our Pride and Prejudice episode, Connie looks at him and gives him a standing ovulation and she decides immediately she's got to have his kid because, you know, he's so famously nice to children. So what do you do now? I'll tell you what you do if you're Connie. You take a long, hard look at yourself in the nude. (laughs) She says that her body is going meaningless, going dull and opaque, so much insignificant substance. I have a prefab here. Lay it on me. From trophy wife to atrophy wife. <laughs> Fellas, am I right? That's very good, yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. shit. That, yeah. That's shit. It's good. Oh. This bit goes on for a long time, her looking at herself. Anyway, back to the daily grind. Connie has to help Clifford in all the intimate things and is starting to resent it. Connie's sister, Hilda, visits and she notices that Connie's a bit depressed and asks Clifford to take her to the doctor and hire himself a servant to deal with all those intimate things. Like, the implication is she has to wipe Clifford's ass and, like, do all the... Doctor's coccyx, yes. (laughs) Um, The doctor agrees with Hilda... He's like, you've got to be amused, properly, healthily amused. You're spending your vitality without making an ear. I didn't know you could be diagnosed with terminal boredom. Yes. It's called being alive. (laughs) Clifford ends up hiring Mrs. Bolton, who I think is my favourite character. Mrs. Bolton. She's a local nurse. Uh, She's a widow to a minor killed in a pit accident. She was a single mother who managed to take a nursing course. She's kind of at once quite socially ambitious, but also resentful toward the rich. Clifford and Mrs. Bolton, they have this sort of master-slave dialectic type relationship, don't they, where, you know... They get really mutually codependent and weird and intimate with each other. And one's always seem to be taking over the other and then becoming subordinated to the other. And Yeah, you know, they have yeah. a very, like, weird power dance that they do, but are, like, obsessed with each yeah, other. Yeah, <laughs> a bit fascinating, yeah. Which leaves Connie free to do whatever. Uh, and for the pair to grow apart. Yeah. I like Mrs. Bolton. I thought the Mrs. Bolton and Sir Clifford relationship was easily the most interesting yeah, in the book. I was like, going to say, but yeah. Way more yeah, yeah. interesting. Why can't we hear about that, please? So, with her new free time, Connie delights in traipsing through the woods. And one day she comes across a little gamekeeper's hut. It's sort of this little shack. Not the main hut. Not the main hut. And she sees Mellard working out there. And so she sits by his fire to watch, and he gets silently furious about this aristocratic intrusion on his privacy. He's like, oh, or what, are you monitoring me? like what's going on and he gets very rude especially when connie asks if she could have a spare key to this little hut so she could sit here on occasion on her walks although i suppose if there's a chick you haven't even boinked yet who's asking for a key to your place that is a little cart before the horse so they have to control me (laughs) he's rearing chicks as well yeah we get a lot where he's um rearing pheasant chicks isn't he yeah yeah that they have it's a metaphor in case you and the pheasant's eggs are being reared sorry by chick are being incubated by chickens aren't they yeah what does that tell cuckoo in the nest you know sorry i did not mean to be such a twat but the uh the metaphors sometimes are a little heavy-handed it was a one-eyed one-horned flying purple people eater yeah 
So they, they kind of have a, a bit of a spat over this. It's a very hostile encounter. But on her next visit to the hut, they kind of make up, question mark? It's difficult to know. Mm. Even Connie doesn't really know. Th- this book and their relationship, it's like reading a spinning compass. I always felt really disoriented. Mm. Like, are you got, so do you like each other or what? Or is this like a an enemies to lovers situation? Mm. Connie is growing to dislike Clifford who is in turn becoming increasingly dependent upon Mrs. Bolton. She indulges and infantilizes him, which is what we all want. Uh, as Mrs. Bolton says, Oh, man, are babies when you come to the bottom of them, she says. Thank you, Mrs. Bolton. <laughs> Clifford starts to turn to Mrs. Bolton for help typing up his correspondence and his books, which is formerly Connie's job. And for Mrs. Bolton, this becomes a sort of education into upper-class manners and learning. You know, she kind of learns all these like, French words, doesn't she? Meanwhile, she kind of reciprocates by gossiping with him about life in Tevishul, the local village, which Cl- gives Clifford a kind of new insight and contempt for the locals. It's our first hint of suspected Bolshevism. All of this gives Clifford a, n- a new sense of lordly vocation and purpose. I'm done being a writer. Yeah. I'm done being a husband, kind yeah. of. <laughs> I'm going to become... A, yeah, an aristo again in the old-fashioned way. I'm going to monetize my minds. So, he's not a f***er, he's a fugger. Um, don't know why I said that. <laughs> he's not a f***er, he's a fracker? Fugger. What's fugger? The aristocratic mine-owning family from 16th century Germany. <laughs> oh, that joke that will play well. You know, Daniel, the, the fucker jokes tested really well with the audience. You should yeah. do more of that. Connie helps Mellers with the pheasants one day, and then she starts crying because a bird is mean to her. And Mellers... No, she <laughs> cries because she's moved by the little... Sp- it pecks her really hard, and she, she talks about it like being kind of rude. Oh, no, she likes that. Okay, fine. She starts, yeah. fine. she starts crying because she's happy that a bird is mean to her. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, <laughs> all right, there we go. Compromise. <laughs> And Mellers is so touched by this that he strokes her back in kind of a sexy way. And before we know what's happening, they're shagging in the shack. I had a joke too. It's a shit joke. It's just the love shack is a little place where we can <laughs> raise some pheasants. And then Mellers rubs his mustache all over her nude body. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Connie is sort of at once overcome, but still strangely alienated by it. She just kind of focuses on how stupid his butt looks. Yeah, a lot of that, yeah. I love that bit about the moustache. That's a really funny bit. Finally, after, you know, several attempts, they, they manage to have decent sex, and they climax together. So he found the devil's doorbell. <laughs> <laughs> and then Lawrence compares Connie's uterus to an undulating sea anemone, which is not a, not a natural comparison. No, come on, you've got to read it. It's disgusting. All her womb was open and soft and softly clamoring like a sea anemone under the tides, clamoring for him to come in again and make a fulfillment oh. of her. Ew, ew. <laughs> I want you to make a fulfillment of me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, okay, no, but... Do you think it gets weirder? Could it get weirder? Because it does. Yes, please. Yeah. So afterwards, quote, her passion for him moved into her bowels. Ladies, do you ever love a man so much you could just poop? <laughs> he was a man whom one's bowels yearned towards. I'm just being pulled by my... <laughs> yeah, you know, it's probably these women. They're all driven by their bowels. <laughs> and then that night she refuses to take a bath because she likes his stank all over her. She's nasty. Yeah, cool. You smell a bit mustachy, darling. 
Back at the house, Clifford reads Racine to Connie. You know, the Can great... you say that less like an asshole, though? Back at the house, Clifford reads Racine to Connie. You know, the classic French tragedian. <laughs> That's his old chat-up move, isn't it? But he's not really into it, and she's not really listening. Mrs. Bolton, Lord Lover, has got everybody drinking malted milk. <laughs> the food of love, then. <laughs> well, it's to make Clifford sleep and Connie fat. Because she's like, oh, you need a bit more meat on your bones, love. Mrs. Bolton, she can kind of infer from Connie's activity of late that something's up. And she spends the night wondering who Lady Chatterley's lover was. Classy title reference. Oh, yeah, a little, uh, I, I hate that so much when they But who is Lady, Lady Chatterley's Chatterley. lover? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Mellors, meanwhile, is thinking about his life. He thinks about his estranged wife, Bertha. <gasps> Do we have somebody else on our reading list who had a sort of disturbed, over-sexualized first wife named Bertha? I think we do. Jane! Yeah, so if you go back to our Jane Eyre episode, I wonder if this book is making reference slightly to Jane Eyre, because Mr. Rochester, spoilers, famously has a first wife named Bertha. Aristocrats, commoners, getting it on. It's all there. There's a little undergraduate essay for you. Um, So... Uh, he's thinking about the future and all of its potential difficulties if he and Connie were to elope because he's, he's worried about people talking. You know? That's what he says that at one point. He goes for a walk with his dog and gun and he holds a little vigil outside the house, Rugby. Mrs. Bolton sees him. He's looking up at the house like a lovesick male dog outside the house where the bitch is. And she's like, aha, he's the lover. God, if only Mellors had a tell. Yeah. <laughs> So, one day, Connie and Mrs. Bolton are sorting through a storage room, and Connie hints that she might have a child. I love this bit with the storage room. We're not going to talk about it too much, but it makes me... Sorry to keep talking about previous texts, but it makes me think of... Counter Hot Tin Roof, which has a lot of talk about weird things in storage rooms. Is that bit with the the sewing egg? Yes. This is a book that contains a lot of eggs. We've already missed a bit about the the mystery of eggs. You're obsessed with eggs. The book is obsessed with eggs. No, every day that I have known you, you have brought up eggs to me. Well, there's this, there's a great line in this about where Connie's like, oh, the forest and the mystery of eggs. <laughs> anyway, carry on. So Connie hints that maybe she'll have a child and we're unclear if she's already pregnant or if she expects she will be so because she's knocking boots with Mellor so frequently or if this is just kind of wishful thinking on her part and maybe she's, she's playing with fire trying to get caught because obviously Mrs. Bolton knows Sir Clifford ain't going to be doing it. So Mrs. Bolton starts alluding about a possible baby and heir to follow Sir Clifford. And Clifford thinks this is great, and maybe it could even potentially be his, because, you know, he's felt a a lot more invigorated lately, (laughs) trotting on the plebs, you know, down at the mine. And and maybe that'll make him get his erections back. Nothing gets you off like (laughs) a class war. He has no idea that Connie has taken him up on his offer for her to take a lover. Connie, meanwhile, she gets an invitation to go to Venice for three weeks in the summer with her sister. And Clifford's like, yeah, I I simply do not travel abroad. Have fun, honey. So this is where Connie comes up with a plan. She's like, I'm going to go to Venice. I'm probably already pregnant by Mellors or will be soon. I'm going to pretend that I've had a love affair in Venice with somebody of our social order who, you know, Sir Clifford isn't going to mind. And I'll come back pregnant and everyone will be happy. Right, and you know, I'm nice. not. I'm not actually going to sleep with anyone while I'm there. Another visit to Mellor's cottage. Connie tells him about the trip to Venice and her kind of impregnation ruse, and Mellor's is a bit irked to have been made use of. <laughs> what for his strong midland sperm? Yes, the very same. Yeah, <laughs> you say very yeah. seriously. Yeah. Hey, the Darwins are from the Midlands, aren't they? We know 
how the species... You know what happened to some of Darwin's kids? Keep going. Um, Died they, they sickly. Wings or yeah. oh, no, okay. Mallers also admits that he's always in a bad mood and he's very quick to anger. Yeah, so, so by all means, Connie, please embed yourself further with this scowling menace. Yeah, he's not a nice, not very nice man, is he? I mean, no one's very nice in this, but he's particularly unpleasant. He's constantly picking fights with her. He's constantly yelling at people. Like, he's This dude is Roy Dragey. Oh, Roy? You can't, you cannot get... Mr. Dragey to you. <laughs> I really thought you met a person first. I was like, who's Roy Dragey? <laughs> Republican congressman for uh, 6th District of uh, Virginia, Roy Dragey. Mellors makes it clear that he wants nothing to do with any child. He's already had one of them. He don't like it. So Sir Clifford is welcome to the kid. Cough up your fucking child support, you deadbeat. Good point, yeah. So again, they're in this sort of fight. Like, I cannot underscore how many times they fight in this book. And it's not cute. It's not like when Daniel and I do it. It's really annoying. Mm. But the sex drive sort of overcomes them and they decide to go back into the cottage because they, they just can't quit each other. She can't stay away. I feel like we need a cat mister for her. Just <laughs> Only the sex is bad again. And I'm like, for fuck's sake, can we, can we have just one ounce of joy in this? Just one? And Connie breaks into tears. So he gives her a little hand job for a bit. And then he somehow gets excited by that again. I mean, is this guy Superman? Because he just finished, but he's like, oh, at full salute, ready to, <laughs> ready to service you again, madam. And they do sex a second time, and now apparently it's good or something. And the sex is so wonderful that she, Connie, thinks this little ode to his penis. Quote, and only now she became of... <laughs> And only now she became aware of the small, bud-like reticence and tenderness of the penis. <laughs> and a little cry of wonder and poignancy escaped her again, her woman's heart crying out over the tender frailty of that which had been the power. <laughs> the unspeakable beauty to touch the warm living buttocks, the life within life, the sheer warm potent loveliness, and the strange weight of the balls between his legs. What a mystery. Let's get that checked out if you've got a strange weight <laughs> on your balls, I think. I just think very clearly a man wrote this. Oh, the mighty penis. Well, you're reading that, I was literally like feeling <laughs> quite nauseous. Oh, like, I thought you were going to say getting choked up. Oh, no, no, like, God, no, no, like, like yeah. My penis is yeah. tender and mild, like the baby Jesus. No, it uh, is that powerful. It's, it's so repulsive, this book. Yeah. They declare their love for each other, don't they? Which is nice. Yeah, so they, they officially, yeah, declare their full love for each other in the following very strange bit of dialogue. That good cunt, though, aren't to best bit of cunt left on earth when to likes when that winning. And then Connie says, what is cunt? Uh, so he, Mellors is like, oh, well, fuck is mindless sex, but cunts a lot more than that. And then as Connie ran home in the twilight, the world seemed a dream, the trees in the park seemed bulging and surging at anchor on a tide, and the heave of the slope to the house was alive. So, you know, they say romance is dead. I mean, I I live as though in a wonderful dream whenever a man calls me cunt. cunt. Yeah. yeah, when you're willing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a horrible thing to say. <laughs> Awkward sex class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you wanted to discuss um, Lawrence's encounter with the censors because we get a lot of, as I said, cunts and fucks in this book. Yeah. Well, I was thinking more that 
And we do a lot of censorship on this podcast. Yeah, we bleep out the swearing, don't we? We bleep out any swearing that would have to be bleeped out on mainstream TV. So basically, what is it, like the big seven that yeah. you have to beep. So you can say damn, but not goddamn. You can say ass, but not asshole. That goddamn thing is weird, I think. I know, yeah, but, but that's... No, yeah, you know, whatever, if you think it's... But that's um, to help yeah. keep it from being uh, rated explicit. Yeah. Although this one, I'm kind of... Yeah, we could make a special exception. I don't know. But anyway, I think it's worth acknowledging that we know that it's a bit odd to bleep it out. I'd rather not bleep it, but sometimes the bleeps are funnier. To yeah, no, yeah, the, I think it, there's something more sordid about a bleep, I yeah. think. Anyway, Clifford and Connie go for a turn about the estate. Clifford's is in his motorized wheelchair again. They debate the lives of the miners and the rights of property. Always fun. Clifford's like, well, I'm a wealth creator. I'm <laughs> providing jobs. <laughs> How else would this dross feed enclose themselves? You know, the biggest cornflake, it rises to the top of the box when you shake it. You can't alter nature, etc. Quote, they are not men. They are animals you don't understand and never could. Don't trust your illusions on other people. The masses were always the same and will always be the same. Nero's slaves were extremely little different from our colliers or the Ford motor car workmen. It is the masses. They are unchangeable and so on. Connie, meanwhile, she's getting a little revolutionary spirit along with her lower class D, yep. and she fights with Sir Clifford about this, even though she, she kind of thinks, quote, there was something devastatingly true in what he said. And I'm like, damn, Connie, attend to your spiritual condition. No, but Mellis is like that too, isn't he? He's I don't like, know. A lot of them. I'm, I'm out for me. He's like a sort of like, I bought my council house first. The moment Thatcher said I could, I bought it. So while all this is happening, while they're having this big fight, they're out on a ramble through the woods, and Clifford's chair breaks down again, and they have to call for Mellors to help push it, which is hugely emasculating for Clifford. Mm. So, you know, find the phallus much? Yeah. The, the chair is his surrogate penis. But also, they keep calling it she, don't they? Well, that's the thing. This is the one little bit that I find is, is sort of an intriguing symbol, is Clifford's chair, because it's not just a pseudo-phallus. Mellors comes, and he's, like, really gentle with the chair, and he coaxes it back, <laughs> you know, to life, and Sir Clifford's a bit of a brute with it. And, yeah, they refer to the chair as she, yeah. Her. Um, so get a good look under her own undercarriage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the chair is you know Connie's vagina or her soul or what's even the difference. Or like a woman or in general. Yeah. Um, and Connie looks on all of this with disdain, especially because Clifford's chair has like trampled through all the highly symbolic bluebells of beautiful England that he had just <laughs> been sort of in raptures about. And she finally realizes in this moment how much she hates him. Quote, now I've hated him, she thought. I shall never be able to go on living with him. So this is kind of the death knell for their marriage, but mm. he doesn't realize it yet. And at lunch, Connie rips into him, and she says he's no aristocrat, no ruler, not even a real man. He's just this bully who has more than his fair share of money. And pa pass the cold meats, darling. <laughs> <laughs> Connie gets so furious at Clifford that she decides to sneak out and spend the whole night with Mellors. That night, they have a little talk about his history... So, yeah, he's been around the block a few times. He met women who adored him, and he had, you know, adored them. And they encouraged him to get an education and better himself, but they, you know, they were this, this one, you know, the type of women, you know them, who don't like sex. That's kind of what Mellor says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then he met Bertha Coots, who's kind of the opposite, isn't she? She's like a kind of common trashy sort, but he was very happy to give up his all kind of former airs and graces to be with a woman who actually liked sex. Quote, Those other pure women had nearly taken all the balls out of me. 
but she was alright that way. She wanted me, and made no bones about it. And I was pleased as punch. That's what I wanted. A woman who wanted me to fuck her. So I fucked her like a good'un. Uh, <laughs> High praise for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> they got married and had their daughter, although they eventually stopped sleeping together. Largely because he's just crazy for those simultaneous orgasms. He's mad for the <laughs> concurrent crises. It's the latest trend. <laughs> um, he didn't like sex with his wife because she had to, quote, grind her own coffee. So she liked to use him as a sexual implement. A little bit like Connie did to Michaelis. So I don't know what's going on there. He went off to war and she just sort of, you know, Irish goodbye her way out of the marriage. And is in a relationship with someone else now. And then Mella's just like, so this is a little bit of philosophy for you, love. I believe in fucking with a warm heart. Thank, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Miller spends a lot of time mansplaining to Connie. Mm. And we get this really lovely little homophobic and racist bit about how women who are sexually cold are basically all lesbians who don't really want a man. And how Mellers hates lesbians more than he hates homosexual men because he's personally suffered at the hands of lesbians. Oh, what a poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want us. you got to respect that. <laughs> And, uh, and before Connie came along, he was convinced that no woman was left in the world who could climax naturally with a man, except maybe for black women, quote, and they're a bit like mud. Sir, what the fuck is this section? Yeah, what's going on? <laughs> it's given misogyny. It's serving racism. Yeah. Work homophobia. Work it, girl. Yeah. Weird bit of pillow talk. Okay. All right. So I have, I have a question for you, right? Okay. So Connie... Fucked Mellers and married Clifford. Who was the third dude so bad she killed him? Ah, good question. That would be a good sequel. sequel. That'd be yeah. a really good sequel. Maybe Mellers. <laughs> can you do that? Can I double up? <laughs> yeah, her, her fuck, Mary kill is, is actually her like five year plan yeah. for Mellers. <laughs> so, Mellers somehow chooses yet another fight with Connie out of nothing, and he's like, I'm gonna go sleep outside. Don't know what accent that yeah. was. It's a little grab bag. You yeah, can like take it. what you like from it. Yeah. It's like literary interpretation. You can get what you need from it, I think. Yeah. Not what you want, but you get what you need. <laughs> <laughs> and so Connie nearly faints from this, and that somehow warms his heart cockles, and they decide to take an oath to be together forever. So this is kind of like the wedding scene. So the oath Mellers swears is... Heart and belly and cock. <laughs> so so the next morning they are just rapturous and connie sees mellers fully naked for the first time and she's in little ecstasies about his penis again and especially about how apparently the carpets match the drapes you yeah, know ginger pubes yeah. <laughs> yeah, ginger. what are you doing here ginger pubes <laughs> is it true that british people when you see redheads and you want to be aggressive you call them ginger knob um i mean all right, ginger knob. Not as a rule, but I think I've heard that, yeah. Okay, because I'm weirdly charmed by that, and yeah. I'm just waiting to it's find very nice. a redhead yeah. who I hate, who I can really, right. yeah. Right, lay into, okay. Okay. Well, if I've got any listeners who want to <laughs> step up to the plate. <laughs> no, we're going to get dick pics now. Oh, yeah, maybe not then. I'm just really sorry. I, I hate this scene. I cannot tolerate these idiots. Um, yeah, they make, they're really stupid people. Well, they? yeah. they're making googly eyes and googly genitals at each other. <laughs> Mellers 
names his penis John Thomas. He has a little dialogue with it, doesn't he? Oh yeah, it's like it's like that scene in Pam and Tommy where he has the dialogue with his penis. I haven't seen that. Oh, the way that he does that. Yeah. Um, and he and he calls uh, Connie's vagina Lady Jane. And they do some really cutesy baby talk about how John Thomas wants Lady Jane and, you know, pardon me while I puke. And we should have done a trigger warning for anyone who has ever eaten anything, ever, because it's coming back up. The next time they're together, Connie tells him she thinks she's going to have a baby. And he's like, what a shame to bring another life into this horrible world. What a disservice to a child. Yeah, very good. What accent was I doing? That was a bit... Ross Noble. It was a bit Geordie. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Kind of range of things. I thought, <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was fine. So they have yet another fight about it before again jumping back yeah. into bed. We should keep it in your pants if you don't want to bring another <laughs> life into this horrible world. So he says that she has the nicest ass of any woman in Christendom and he's like, I'm gonna Scrooge McDuck that ass, baby. <laughs> and then he plays with her butthole for a little while and he tells her he's glad that she's a woman who is capable of shitting. Well, you're in trouble if you're not. <laughs> I just... Then, okay, and this is the most famous yes, scene of the book. Here we go. Then he decorates her pubes with wildflowers and they get into yet another fight. It's, it's pretty hard to be taken seriously in a fight when you have bluebells strung through your junk. So they, they get into yet another fight, this time about her going to Venice, but then she decorates his pubes with wildflowers, and it's all okay again. Yeah, the old makeup flower arranging. Yeah. <laughs> Quick question, Daniel. Huh? Yeah, no, an odd bit. Don't care for it, flower arranging. Sounds quite boring, actually, doesn't it? <laughs> Hilda! You know, like Hilda and Zelda? Yeah. Well, That's not this. No, it's not this. But similar, <laughs> Hilda, Connie's sister, she writes to say that she's going to pick her up for the trip to Venice. Hilda eventually arrives and Connie tells her about Mellors. And she says, finally confesses. Yeah. Hilda's like, hmm, I don't really care for this. And I'm sure you'll get over him soon enough. But one can't mix up with the working people. And Connie's like, but you're a socialist. And Hilda's like... In political terms, yes, but their personal rhythm is different. And I think that's just good politics, isn't it? I mean, that's true. Like, I'm I'm here doing a waltz. Lower class Daniel's given me a samba. It just, our rhythms are different. Yeah. Just that again and again. <laughs> so, that night, they organized the rendezvous. Mellis takes Connie and Hilda back to his hut. And he and Hilda do not get on. Wow, who could have predicted that? Could it be every fucking person that Mellors has gotten along with <laughs> yeah. so well so far. Well, you never know with him, I think. Like, he didn't get on with Connie, did he? And look where that ended up. Flowers. That yeah. kind of works a little bit like foreplay, though, for Mellors and Connie, though, yeah. doesn't it? She, Hilda leaves kind of in a huff. They spend a night of sensual passion. And this, dear listener, is supposedly a portrayal of anal sex. Quite, quite elusively, if so, but in any case, it went unnoticed in the 1960 trial, but was immediately debated after that. I didn't notice this at all. I, I knew that... I didn't notice it too, but I knew that other people said it. Carry on. Yeah, I just thought... It, he, they talk about he teaches her to do stuff, and it's sort of like a, a night of general depravity, but I, I didn't know they were doing it, as my grandma would call it, in the, the French fashion. Yeah. So if you if y'all have some pearls to clutch, you can clutch them or not as you like over this scene. It, it, it kind of went by me, but... Well, it went by me too. I just knew that it was a thing. So. so, butt stuff achievement unlocked. And then, speaking of which, Connie then heads south. Connie and Hilda... From the Grand Anal to, to the Grand Canal. Carry on. 
I saw that coming in slow motion. It was like 2020, 2021, 2022. That's how long I saw that yeah. joke coming. Okay. And I still couldn't Stop redirect it. it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So... The sisters have a reasonably good time in Venice. It all gets a little jazz-agey, a little Gatsby on the Mediterranean, but Connie is ultimately really bored by it, and she only wants to go back home to horrible Ragby so she can be with horrible Mellers. And she even meets this old friend named Duncan, um, who's gonna come up later. They, they spend a little time together, but she's kind of like, this guy, whatever. She finds out on the trip that she's definitely pregnant. And she also gets a very dramatic letter from Sir Clifford recounting some local gossip. So while Connie was gone, Mellers filed for divorce from his truant wife, but he came home one day to his cottage to find Bertha. She'd broken a window to get in, and she was just lying naked in bed waiting for him. So awkward sex claxon. Mm. He's kind of like, oh no, I'm not having this, and he manhandles her out of the house. We're still... Mellers' wife, Bertha, noticed a couple of strange things happening in Mellers' cabin. Connie left a perfume bottle there. No. Hilda had her cigarette ends. And Connie, because she's a fucking moron, even, like, doodled her initials. She carved her initials into a piece of wood. Mistake. I mean, she wants to be caught, right? So Bertha starts spreading all around town that Mellers is having affairs with women, and she names Lady Chatterley as one of them. And Sir Clifford threatens Bertha with legal action if she doesn't stop gossiping. And Bertha's like, okay, it's all getting a little too hot for me. I'm going to skip town. And she basically leaves Mellers alone for good now. So Sir Clifford questions Mellers about all of this, but Mellers manages to keep Connie secret. And he's like, listen, Bertha's just crazy. It was all just a part of her plot to discredit me. But also, you know what? Fuck you, dude. I quit. And he plans to leave Ragby within the week long before Connie gets home from Venice and she's heartbroken about this news. And when Connie gets back to London, she goes to visit Mellors in his new lodgings. That's where he lives now, London. Mellors wants to break it off with Connie because he just can't be a male concubine. Why not? Why not, Connie asks. Good question. Mellors paraphrases the Buddha a bit because he's one of those that When he did that, I was like, now we know who you are. We're done with you. You've revealed your true face. He's that meme of that guy shouting at that girl in the club. No offense to Buddhists in general, but you know, you know what kind of a guy he is. But ultimately, he decides to stay with her after six months when both of their divorces go through. That's the plan. She tells her dad about it. He's a Scottish painter, isn't he? So that that will be a bit fun for me. He initially thinks that Mellors is a gold digger, but when they meet, they really get on. Um, now, if we remember, her dad from the beginning was like. You, you gotta get a bit of slap and tickle yeah. of, I, I need my daughter to get really railed. Yeah. Like, he... <laughs> so, yeah, he's a creep. Uh, you've got a baby in her, all right. How was the going, eh? Good, my boy? What? And then Mellers is like, yeah, sir, the sex with your daughter was very good. <laughs> my daughter chip off the old block, what? I never went back on a good bit of f***ing myself. Though her mother, holy saints, but you warmed her up. You set fire to her haystack, all right. Ha, ha, ha. I was jolly glad of it, I can tell you. She needed it. Uh, weird. That is the most awkward sex klaxon. Yeah, classic meeting would be your girlfriend's dad. Jesus. So, yeah, they share the old Freemasonry of male sensuality between them. That's what uh, D.H. Lawrence says. I think there is that Freemasonry of men, isn't there? But it's just called the patriarchy, I think. (laughs) (laughs) 
So the plan is to get Connie's old friend, the artist Duncan Forbes, who appeared in the Venice bit, to be the co-respondent in her divorce case. In other words, she's saying like, "Oh, I've been I've been boinking Duncan, somebody of our social set, and he's the reason for the divorce." Yeah. Like you have to name a correspondent, basically. Yeah. Like back in those I've been, days. I've been having an affair with, and that's my cause for divorce. Yeah, to spare Clifford's feelings, because. You know, she's boinking a poor, and that would really hurt Sir Clifford to yeah. know. So, yeah, so that's the plan. Forbes is doing this big favour for them both. They introduce Mellors to Forbes, don't they? Forbes is an artist, and Mellors trashes his work. He's such an arsehole. Bite the penis that feeds yeah. him. Yeah, <laughs> that's revolting. Sorry. Uh, but yeah, seriously, like, this guy is just like, yeah, I've never even had the joy of having sex with this woman, and I'm about to put myself on the yeah, line it, very, going in the papers, very yeah. publicly, and okay. Your work's a bit derivative, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, Connie breaks it to Clifford like she wants a divorce, and he know he's known for a long time now that she was probably going to leave him. But his, his business dealings, all this stuff with trying to break strikes at the mine and really grind down his workers, they've left him colder and harder than ever. He also has this very weird little moment where he breaks down and confesses to Mrs. Bolton, his nurse, that Connie's leaving him. And he cries, and they kind of kiss a little bit, and he plays around with her boobies. <laughs> and it's all very sexual, but all very, like, mother and child. And I'm just like, oh, Mrs. Bolton, get your big pointies up out of this man's face. <laughs> it leaves her both thrilled and ashamed. Ashamed. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So Connie visits Ragby one final time, and he he's so frustrating about not giving her this divorce that Connie finally says the one thing that she knows will make him hate her enough to let her go. It's not Duncan's child she's having, it's Mellor's, your old gamekeeper. Sir Clifford is furious and disgusted. He is so disgusted that his penis just starts, like, curling up like the Wicked Witch of the East's feet under the Dorothy house. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> read the bit. Read what he says. Quote, If he could have sprung out of his chair, he would have done so. My God, you ought to be wiped off the face of the earth. That scum, that bumptious lout, that miserable cad, and yeah. on and on. God, yeah. Yeah. So Clifford says he'll... Bumptious lout. <laughs> Gonna pocket that for later. <laughs> Clifford says he's gonna torture Connie and Mellors by never giving her the divorce ever. Connie leaves Ragby forever, and she goes up to Scotland with Hilda, waiting for the baby to be born. Mellors, meanwhile, has gotten work elsewhere, and he is waiting for his six-month divorce period to be over. The book ends ambiguously. We never know if Sir Clifford gives Connie the divorce. We never know, you know, if she ends up with Mellors. But the book ends with a letter that Mellors writes to Connie saying how depressed he is with the state of the world, how there's no future without radical social change. And also, quote, John Thomas says goodnight to Lady Jane, a little droopingly, but with a hopeful heart. The end. That's the last line. That's the last line. We read this book, and all we got out of it was this lousy podcast episode. Yeah. Daniel, I have to go out and live my life after this. Yeah. I have to do my taxes. Yeah. Uh, I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> so, would you like some casting? Yes, please. This is 100% some boring-ass Terrence Malick bullshit. This movie would be three and a half hours long and would have a detailed meditation on, like, a violet. And I would hate every second of it and yet be unable to stop watching. And in terms of who I would cast, 
a few years ago they actually did a version of this with Holiday Granger and I think that's kind of an inspired choice that that's kind of exactly how Connie is described I think they should, they should give one of the Hemsworths a bit of an acting stretch as Sir Clifford because he's supposed to be handsome and young Tom Hardy should be Mellors he's vaguely gingery no. he's vaguely gingery and he's got to be more lean He's he a lean machine. Down. He can slim down. No, I'm thinking like Pete Postlethwaite, like a young Pete Postlethwaite. Well, this is my version. So okay, you well, this is my up, version. You can come up with your own version. Yeah. And I want Colin Farrell to come work with Terrence Malick again as Michaelis. He'd be really funny in that role. Yes. He would in- inject some much-needed levity. Oh, right. No, here we go. Here's mine. Okay. Domhnall Gleeson. He's my Mellors. My Mellors is Domhnall Gleeson with a he's moustache. Too, he's too friendly looking though he's got no he's not always you need but you need a real like hardness to mellers he you need to i think domino gleason can can do it (laughs) mellers goes from syllogisms to punching somebody right in the nuts that's what mellers is he's a robert carlisle sold yeah okay sold put a ginger wig on robert (laughs) carlisle done and done (laughs) (laughs) all right now for our segment bad goodreads reviews The real reasons I give this book one star are as follows. One, too many innocent flowers being woven into pubic hair. (laughs) Two, the use of the word beak when you least expect it. (laughs) And three, the naming of a penis. I mean, really? John Thomas? One star. How's your June? Sounds like a literal fedora with arms wrote this. Oh, yeah. One star. Yeah, definitely. Do you think? Yeah. I would, uh, Raymond Chandler or something, yeah. No, but, but the fedora types these days is what they mean, like a neck beard. Shit, you're right. Yeah. Okay, I get it now. I, yeah. That's not even a bad Goodreads review. That's actually... It's a good, bad Goodreads It's review. a good, bad Goodreads. Okay, Daniel, this is, this is a first for us. We have our first rap. Great. Very good. Yeah. I, quicker I, than the, the read. I, I know I'm not a natural rapsman, um, <laughs> but I, I thought I'd give it some effort then. Oh, yeah, I, I like that. Okay. Yeah. You're going to give me a beat? You're going to drop a beat? No. For my no, sick rhymes? I don't think so. Okay. Oliver Mellers, he a punk, filling Lady Chatterley with his junk, knocking her up with his spunk. Connie, she's a slutty broad. Sir Malcolm, incestuous dad, doesn't really rhyme. D.H. Lawrence, he a fraud. Now that this the cast, we're done with this rap. This book is a shitload of crap. One star. A shitload of crap. I know. It's a metric. Shitload. Yeah. Not, not imperial. Oh, it's metric. Yeah. That's really important. And then the saddest one that I think really encapsulates how I felt with this. Ooh. I don't want to be horny anymore. I just want to be happy. <laughs> Two stars. God. Right. Shall we analyze this giant turd of a book? Yeah. Please. Are you tuckered out? Are you tired? Why? You look. Ti- you just look yeah, so exhausted. Yeah, I'm a bit tired actually. Yeah. What was it that really did it for me? Was it the rap? Might have been actually. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Stylistically, then, I think that was the thing that most struck out to me. So I've not really read very much Lawrence. We were talking about this beforehand. That he, yeah. I think he's a bit out of fashion, isn't he? He had a bit. He had a moment in the kind of eighties. Yeah, he. Uh, this is the first Lawrence I've ever read, so I don't know. Yeah. His other stuff is supposed to be a lot better. I, I know scholars I think, true, yeah. think that this is his worst book by a long margin. I've read some of his short stories and stuff, but I was, the main thing I was surprised by was just like how unmodernist it is. That mm. for something that's like post Joyce and, and post Wolf and, and post Wolf, and it, even post 
Fitzgerald. Yeah, it feels like a sort of almost like a, a novel of the eighteen nineties, doesn't it? Yeah. It feels quite aestheticist. Well, I was I was thinking I don't I wouldn't go so far as to say eighteen nineties, but this definitely feels like an Edwardian yeah. text for me. It feels like he was writing this a good fifteen years before. Yeah, like with like E.M. Forster or something. Well, I I have here. He feels like an E.M. Forster who's really let himself go. That was my yeah, that's what yeah. I have written down. Uh, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? That's the main. It's just so stupid. All the rhapsodizing. It's really silly. As I wrote here, it made me want to read some Hemingway. Just yeah, to kind of clean my palate. I was I was really embarrassed reading a lot of this stuff. I, I mean, I was like uncomfortably laughing during most of this, and I was they're just like. <laughs> yeah. scrumptious wordplay what, what's that bit so there's this really stupid bit that I just like thought this is ridiculous I think I like wrote no next to it or something <laughs> The wood was silent, still and secret, in the evening drizzle of rain, full of the mystery of eggs and half-open buds, half-unsheathed flowers. In the dimness of it all, trees glistened naked and dark, as if they had unclothed themselves, and the green things on earth seemed to burn with greenness. Burn with greenness. Yeah. It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people-eater. Which is almost so shit, I quite liked it. I know what you mean, because yeah. I'm like, I feel like he's written worse stuff, but it's indicative of... Yeah, it's, of... Just, it's just ridiculous. The mystery of eggs. I know I keep saying it, but what is that? <laughs> I thought this was weird as well, because it's, it felt kind of counterproductive, because there's all that talk, we didn't really talk about it much in the summary, but one of the reasons that Connie turns against Clifford, or one of the reasons she explains it to herself, is that she doesn't like him for like turning everything into words. There's a yeah. bit where he's out in the estate and going, like, oh, these lovely bushes, like... You know, the the tears of Bacchus or something like and that. And she's like, what about my lovely bush? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's he's all words, no action, no yeah. passion. So what's... But that's what this book is, It's it, and it's taken all the passion out. And in a way, I mean, I the scholar that I heard on Kate Lister's podcast, she was talking about how this was actually an ode to Lawrence's wife, Frida, hmm. who Lawrence is like, I know I'm dying. I know I can't have sex with her. I want her to, like, it's a meditation on living in death, basically, mm. and, and him wanting her to sort of go on after him and enjoy sex and do things. So I can- That makes much more sense. I can appreciate yeah. it quite a lot in that so much of this world felt dead to me. Yeah. That you could see maybe this is Lawrence wanting these things for Frida, but he's so caught up with his own stuff, He's he, it feels it's like through a real, that lens. It's yeah. such a dead book. Yeah. I mean, that's the, something is so passive mm. about the writing. Everything that happened just felt like it was nothing. Like it was just insubstantial, and there were no stakes. And I just couldn't. Despite how like absurdly vibrant it is, you can't. I just could not bring myself to care about yeah. anyone or anything that happened. And I wanted to. I really went into this really wanting to love this. Yeah. And at first, I really liked the sort of passivity because I was like, oh, that's that's a great way of showing how lost Connie is. But, but then even afterwards, yeah. But my at the end, I was getting so upset. It felt like you were sort of reading this from the bottom of a well. Mm. And and the the final note I have here is this was a void that doesn't even stare back. Yeah, it does feel very. I, I have a, a uh, whole bunch of like angry notes I jotted. Angry aphorisms. I, at the very end, I wrote like Lady Chatterley. I was surprised I was able to finish. <laughs> um, so I just I clearly like was fed up. But that's like it was the first line. We live in a tragic age. The last line. John Thomas says hello, but droopingly. It doesn't go out with a bang. <laughs> it goes out with a whimper. And I felt like maybe that's kind of what Lawrence is saying that you want to get around words, you want to get around language, but ultimately you can't. I feel like. 
I feel like it, that's the tragic underlying. That maybe we should talk a bit about the kind of the politics of the book. Cause I was quite disturbed by that, especially sure. the end of Mellor's John Thomas letter. He also says all that stuff about how oh, all well, the proles these days, you know, they got no politics, and even if they did, I wouldn't agree with it because I'm not a, a communist. They just need to be all peasants again and dance around the maypole. He pretty much just says that. It feels like quite a Nietzschean text in that sort of yeah, only certain special individuals can thrive and. You know, f*** the rest of them, you know. Yeah, they just need to get on with their sad little lives. I mean, it was really weird because we clearly had this undercurrent of some wild injustices do, being done to these mine workers. Mm. And, I mean, he's willing to acknowledge that Lawrence's dad worked in a mine. Yeah. But we never get anything from their perspective. No. There's a lot that feels almost very anti-Great Gatsby to me where it's like, wouldn't it be better if it was all just feudalism? There's no mobility. Let's go back. Like, we mm. hate modernity. Just go back to how it was where things used to be beautiful. They are quite similar works, aren't they? Because there's a kind of valley of ashes yeah. that we didn't really cover, but where Connie's just like, oh, all the ugliness, all the ugly people, and all the people mm-hmm. were disgusting, and they all looked like they came from the earth, and they were made of crap. But- it does feel like it's just like... Back in the old days when people knew their place, that's what we want. Just I the, the politics of this, I thought this was going to be so much more radical on all fronts than mm. it was. I was so disappointed when I'm like, oh yeah, you know, get down to some dirty fucking and some cool like working yeah. class politics no, and I'm yeah. here for it. And it gave me nothing. Yeah. Just, I am impotent with rage. At the yeah. And in terms of like, what is the title of the book, right? The book is Lady Chatterley's Lover. I mean, it's technically named for Mellers. Technically, mm. he's the subject of that title. But it's the class stuff yeah. that sells the book, yeah. isn't it? And he's sort of relational to her. He doesn't have a name or an identity. And the focus is on his use yeah. for well, her. Well, as he himself says, though, in films, yeah. I suppose you could say the feminist reading would be that it is really more about her kind of sexual awakening and it's not really even really about Mellors. But I, that's that's the other thing is it didn't really feel about her sexual awakening if... It felt more like his sexual yeah. reawakening, yeah. and she was just kind of there, and it was told through her eyes, but it was mostly about him. Yeah. Or even it's, that there's a bit of a sort of like, what she just needs is taken in hand. You know, there was a bit of yeah, that sort of, yeah, which I just, felt was a bit unsavory. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing, though, but because it's so, like, in her head, uh, and we get these dialogue chapters, it really made me think of um, Dostoevsky and all the kind of polyphony. Uh, sometimes it feels very preachy, but other times I'm like, I'm not really sure who we're meant to be on the side of, and everybody seems kind of flawed, but they all have these different vantages. I thought that was, Lawrence is quite good at constructing these different worldviews that we, we kind of see the surface of that, like Mellis's weird philosophy and Connie's yeah. weird worldview, and then all of the kind of Clifford and his mates, but we don't have a kind of full insight into it. They're just kind of all put next to each other, and we have to sort of work out how they relate to each other. We're skating over multiple different surfaces. Yeah. yeah. Clifford and Mrs. Bolton, please. I want that. Give us that love story, yeah. man. I um, want to see them ten years hence, and people going, so how did you two meet? Well. <laughs> Can you stop playing with our breasts while you're in public, please? <laughs> no! <laughs> disability stuff then because dis- Clifford's disability is framed pretty explicitly as a direct cause of his like spiritual shortcomings yeah it's, he's a burden he's a you know infantile he's, yeah he's frigid he doesn't seem redeemable at all but I find this really interesting because Lawrence himself was chronically ill and basically by this point disabled yeah, a bit self-hating maybe yeah that's uh, that just made it, I think that made it all the sad yeah I didn't know that until today that he because he is associated with like fascism like a lot of them, those kind of modernists like wolf yeah. as well he's always saying things like oh why can't we just do away with them you know who are yeah. like, insert group here yeah but you know that makes it a bit more complex doesn't it but right, should we move on yeah okay here's some advice 
So good writers can occasionally write a bad book. It happens, right? And I think this is helpful to remember because sometimes a bad work from an otherwise good writer can put their good works into sort of stark relief and it can help you talk about them. So why does this one book, you know, not work compared to the others? Or why do the others work? Like what, what is this author good at? What are these sort of threads that carry through that are, you know, sort of skillful or like mm. where does the author get lost? And also this is, this is kind of why you should give authors multiple chances because their skills and interests and styles can grow and change over the years. We're not all stagnant, so just because you read one book and hated an author doesn't mean all of their works are going to be like that. You don't put your foot into the same author twice. <laughs> I'd like to put my foot into this yeah, author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, your advice could have been a clue to the next episode. Yes, actually, it anyway, could. Carry on. So we're going to give the clue to the next episode, assuming that we do our sort of optional one in two weeks time so apologies if we decide in the meantime not to but our clue to the next episode is that our text is surprisingly gory and action-packed considering who wrote it not somebody known for their sort of goriness and it's also unusual considering what percentage of the text is focused on knitting Ooh. So please write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen. And uh, from Daniel and myself, happy new year and goodbye. Yeah, stay away from those bluebells. See ya. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.